This morning I'm excited that we get to uh, start a new series in uh, a wonderful book, a history book. And for some of you, you've already stopped listening. I said history. And you remember history as dry and boring. You remember it as something that's just a bunch of dates and of names that you're never going to use again. But I happen to be a history major. And so I love all that stuff. Because what you learn in history is you learn about yourself. You learn about patterns of behavior. You learn uh, about great and sweeping movements throughout the world and in society. Uh, You see uh, the continued problem of the world uh, isn't one government form or another government form. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. The deepest problem that the world faces is the fact that human beings are running the world. And that as individual human beings, we have within us broken, selfish hearts uh, that think that we know better and that we have left God on the sideline, that we have altogether gone on our own, and we continue to run headlong into the same mistakes that generations ahead of us have done. And so the book of Judges is a history book. It's a history book within the Old Testament that tells the story of the history of Israel. Now, Israel has come out of Egypt. They have been wandering in the desert for 40 years with Moses leading them along the way. And after Moses died and they were unable to come into the land under his leadership, God raised up a leader for them, and his name was Joshua. And Joshua had then led the people into the land of Canaan. It was a land filled with flowing with milk and honey, and it was a land that was filled with giants and all kinds of other uh, tribes and peoples who were pagan. Uh, And that's not in in a pejorative way, but it's in a way of saying that they were pagan in their worldview. Uh, They didn't believe in Yahweh. They didn't have a system of belief that said God created all things and that we should then come and have relationship with him. And so God used the people of Israel to come into the land of Canaan. And in one level, they were his instruments of judgment and justice against these pagan nations. And in the midst of being his instruments, the people of Israel were blessed and they received the land. And so now Joshua has led them in this conquest And Joshua now goes to be with the Lord. And so a new chapter begins, and that's where we find ourselves in the beginning of the book of Judges. And we're going to look together through the course of this summer uh, at the lessons that we learn within a history book. And I hope that it brings history alive to you. I hope that you, that you finish this series and you go, wow, I'd never seen the book of Judges that way. I've never considered history uh, in that way. That's my hope. I, I hope that you don't just fall asleep and are kind of down. I spoke Friday night at the graduation for uh, my boy's former uh, school up in Rock Hill, and one of their friends who graduated took a picture of a man who was sleeping during my speech, my talk, and he said, Mr. McCutcheon, you had a great effect on this guy. And uh, Lisa and I are scouring that picture. We think his eyes were actually open, and he was concentrating deeply on what I was saying, but we, the pixels are a little blurred, so we're not quite sure. So I'm hoping that you don't go sound asleep, but I will tell you this, I do notice Um, So there was a guy at our former church who used to tell me, Bill, that was a great sermon. And he slept through the whole thing. And he was a big enough man to where he had enough chins to where his head wouldn't move. And so you really couldn't tell that he'd fall asleep. And finally, I looked at him one day and I said, which part of the sermon did you like? The part that put you to sleep or the part that woke you up? And his wife just was like, somebody finally got him. But uh, he thought my sermons were long. I thought, it just helps you sleep longer. Just, you know, so... um, If you need a rest, close your eyes. I won't be too offended. But we're going to look today at a great, hmm, 
don't know if I should say great problem, but really what we're going to look at is a pattern. A pattern of behavior for God's people throughout all of the ages who find themselves trying to live for Christ, live for God in the midst of a pagan world. Does that sound familiar? Uh, The possibility that's applicable to us today? That we are trying to live our life in America as Christians in a culture that is increasingly dismissive uh, of the held beliefs of biblical beliefs and truths. Well, that's no different from what the people in Joshua's day and post-Joshua era were finding. Because they had gone into, into the land of Israel. They had defeated most of the enemies. They had some cleanup work to do. They were supposed to go in and eradicate the people 100% to push them past the boundaries and to not allow them to stay at all. But they didn't do it. They went 90%. Maybe even some of them went 95%. But what's the problem with only going 90% or 95%? It still leaves the project undone. And God was saying to them, I want this fully done. Because if you allow these things and these people to remain, they are going to cause problems for you. And what we find is that the people began to experience problems. I don't have this printed for you. We're going to pick up really in verse 16 of chapter 2. But I do want to read this, uh, picking up in verse 11. This is from the New American Standard. It says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. And thus they provoked the Lord to anger and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn them to them so that they were severely distressed. Do you see the picture of what's happening? Joshua was barely dead. A generation that had walked with the Lord was barely gone. And it shouldn't surprise us, as one writer put it, it shouldn't surprise us that the people of Israel fell away, but it should surprise us how quickly they fell away. And it's rapid how quickly it says that they fell away from the Lord and they began to follow the Baals. They began to follow Ashereth. They began to worship Molech. They began to worship the gods of the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Amorites and all of the the people who were there. And you may go, well, that's the big deal. Well, here's the big deal. And I could get into the gruesome nature of those practices of worship, and they were gruesome. Molech was a god who they found uh, idols of him as he was kneeling down with his arms outstretched and they would build a fire in his lap and then they would lay their living children on his arms and they would burn their children alive to Molech praying that God, that the God of Molech, that he would bless them in that way. Canaan, where the Canaanites were, the Baal and the Ashtoreth, and they would take their little girls and they would allow their little girls to be raped at the hands uh, of the priests of Baal because they believed that the fertility of the season in the spring rites and in the fall rites would only happen and there would be fertility in the ground and that all the crops would come in this agrarian culture if they allowed their beautiful little children to be raped at the hands uh, of these men and women. 
And that men would leave their wives and they would go and they would have sex with the prostitutes there and they would murder people and they would flail themselves and cut themselves and would do all of this. It was a horrible, disgusting religions that God was dealing with. But God wasn't trying to eradicate them because of the grotesque nature of their their dealings in their religion. He was trying to eradicate them because they stood in opposition to Him. Something doesn't have to be grotesque in order for it to have to come and to be in opposition to God. It just has to be in opposition to Him. So it's easy for us to look around in the world today and to pick certain social issues that we say, oh, these are grotesque social issues and we're going to stand in firm opposition to them and we're going to place our our stake in the ground on these things. And God may say those are grotesque and those are wrong, but there are other things that are just as wrong. And that is you forgetting me in your life. That are you being so prideful that you would go out and live in this way and think you can do it on your own. There are subtle ways that the people remained in the land and were influenced. And there were some not so subtle ways. So God was saying to the people, I want you to not be influenced by them. But guess what happened? They were influenced by him. And it's easy for us to stand in judgment, isn't it? How could they be influenced so quickly by all of these folks? They just saw Joshua do these great things. They sit, I mean, remember Joshua in the Battle of Jericho? Remember that song and that story? What happened in that story? The walls came tumbling down, remember? Yeah. And how did the walls come tumbling down? The people had huge battering rams, and they went and they smashed the walls, and they were incredible strategic people who knew just where the architectural and the engineering uh, weak points were, and if they hit that particular brick, everything else would come down. Is that how it happened? They blew stupid trumpets. And God said, it's not about you. It's about me. And they went to I, and they did the same thing. And they went to city-state after city-state after city-state, and the walls continued to come down because God was for them, and they followed God. But then something happened. They stepped out in front of God, and they said, we got it. We appreciate all your help. We appreciate everything that you've done for us but we've got it. We've been considering that maybe it would be a better better political tool for us to join and ally ourselves with some of these people than to get rid of them. Maybe it would be better for us to just tone it down a little bit, God. We're still going to worship you, but there's some pretty cool things over here with Baal and Asherah. And so what we're going to do, God, is we're going to sort of mix these things together. I preached a sermon not long ago on Psalm 121. I lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence does my help come. My help comes in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And we said that in the hills, what did you find in the hills? What you found in the hills were the high places, the high places of Baal and Asherah. And they were saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, but come up here. If you've got marital problems, well, come and be with one of our prostitutes. You'll forget all about your wife. You won't even have to think about her. If you've got difficulties with your children, well, bring one of them and sacrifice them to Molech, and you won't have to deal with that child ever again, and you'll be blessed. Just come up to these places. And guess what the people of God were doing? They were going. And not only were they allowing them to remain there, they were going and they were mixing their worship in with the worship of the pagan world. And God was no longer distinct and held out. And folks, before you extrapolate down that that meant they used rock and roll music and drums and guitars that's not what it's talking about you do know that an organ was pretty crazy a few centuries ago 
And so it's not that way, but it's basically what they said was this. We're going to take God and we're going to mix him with what the culture says is okay. And all of a sudden they were in trouble. It says they rebelled against the Lord and they found themselves in distress. And we're going to pick up now in verse 16. And it, you, remember, it ended with this. It says that the Lord raised, uh, that the, whenever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and the Lord had sworn to them and, he was severe, and they were severely distressed. Where did they find themselves? They found themselves a mess of people lost. They had rebelled against God. They had done what he had just told them exactly what not to do and they found themselves distressed. Can you relate to that at all? Boy, I can. God's pretty clear in this. Bill, you need to follow me. And you need to do the things that I've called you to do. And you need to believe in these certain things. And you need to live in this certain way. And when Bill McCutcheon determines in all of the arrogance and all of the self-pride and all the autonomy that I can generate within myself, I say, you know, God, I appreciate that and I'll take that under advisement. And I will, I will keep that here, but I'm going to go and do it this way. You know what normally happens with me? I find myself severely distressed. When I don't humble myself, husbands, let me try this with you. When you don't humble yourselves around your wives and you think your advice is the best advice that God has given to the world, and you continue to give it unsolicited to your wives, what does that do? Do you ever find yourself severely distressed? None of you? It's just me and you, hon. Sorry. Yeah, none of you are going to admit it. That's it, you cowards uh, there. But we do. And wives, when you think that you have all of the answers for your husband, and if he is just going to do all the things that you want him to do, and you set yourself above him in that way, how's that working? We find ourselves severely distressed instead of this beautiful passage in Ephesians which says, submit one to another as unto the Lord, that you consider yourself less in that. You don't think too highly of yourself or too little of yourself. You just think of yourself less, and somehow things work beautifully. You see, the people of God in this story in Judges had found themselves distressed. And guess what? What normally happens when you find yourself distressed and you've got just a little bit of church kicked in, or maybe you really are a believer, what happens when you get to that point and you've really royally messed up? What do you normally do? God, can you get me out of this mess? You remember, I was the guy in college who would pray on Thursdays, Lord, forgive me for what I'm going to be doing this weekend. I had just enough religion and just enough spirituality to know what I was planning on doing probably wasn't along the ways that the Lord wanted me to do, but I was going to go ahead and do it in my arrogance and in my pride, and I was going to falsely, and then when things really did begin to fall apart in my life, when things really did begin to get messy, guess what I would do? Lord, would you help me? Guess what the people of Israel did? Lord, would you help us? We're in oppression to these people who you said we should have destroyed. The people who we should have been ruling are now ruling us. Father, somehow our social orders are falling apart because we didn't follow your plan. Somehow my own personal life, the things I'm buying all of this stuff and I'm working and doing all this, but it's going into bags that have holes in it. I eat, but I'm never satisfied. I drink, but I can never get drunk. I go and do all of these things and I'm worn out and I'm tired. God, what can I do? Lord, come save me. And guess how God responds? You want to know? How do you think he should respond? People have arrogantly gone their own way. 
The people have done their own thing. They've set him aside. They have looked at him, and it says there's one line in here that's going to offend some of you, that basically they played the whore. They've gone out and prostituted themselves with every other God that's out there. It's this picture of basically this. A wife comes home into her house, and her husband is there with another woman. And he looks at his wife, and he basically says, Honey, I hope you're okay with this. I still love you. I'll be done in a little while. Or the wife comes home and the husband is with someone else and says the same thing. That's the picture. That's the graphic nature of the picture of what's happening here. It's God's people who are adulterating themselves with other gods who are knowing these other gods in intimate ways that were only designed for us to be with God. And so how should God respond? You're done. There's a great far side. Any of y'all know who the far side, you know, I wish he would come back and uh, at least someone would reproduce those. There was a great one. It, It had a guy... Uh, walking down the street on the computer screen, and right above him was hanging a a piano like that by a cord that was being frayed. And the movers were trying to pull it up on the pulley, and there's this picture of a control panel, and it's God's hand, and there's a big red button, and it says, Smite. Good Old Testament King James Version word. Because what you expect God to do when his people are so rebellious is basically this, go, I'm done with you. I've given you chance after chance, McCutcheon. I've given you chance after chance. I've done this and done this and done this, and you continue to run after other gods. You continue to do these things. I am done with you. Over. Any of you all feel that way with God? That you're just about at that point where he's just about done with you? We all have at some point. You need to hear verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the people who plundered them. Do you see the beauty of the gospel which comes right in when what we should have deserved was judgment and what we should have deserved was to be destroyed under the weight of our sin. What we should have happened for all of the people in Israel was for God to destroy them all and go find another people group and start with them. But he didn't. He said, I'm going to raise up judges who are going to rule over you. I'm going to raise up Deborah and Gideon and Samson and Ehud and I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to lift them up and they're going to lead you into battle and they're going to destroy your enemies and you are going to flourish again and you're going to worship me and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to pour out my mercy in your life and my grace in your life because that's what kind of God I am. Does that astound you at all? Because verse 16 does not seem that it should follow verse 15 in my reading of it. What it should say was God stood up as a judge and he destroyed the people. But instead he said he rose up judges who saved them from the people who plundered them. What a great word, plundered. Do you realize that's what sin does to your life? It plunders you. It comes in and steals the spoils of war from you. It takes from you your treasure. It doesn't want to build you up. It wants to destroy you. And God sends in a judge to come. And the rest of the story goes like this. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they hoard themselves after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. 
But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out the people before the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether that they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left the nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. It's God's word. Do you see the picture? And we're just going to end. This is sort of a short synopsis today. But what I want you to see is this. God hears your cries. Whose fault was it that Israel got into these predicaments? Whose fault? Theirs. They owned it. It was their fault. And they cried out. And you know what God did? He said he was moved. It said that his heart was broken within him. And he was moved by compassion for these children that he loved, who he knew had weaknesses and he knew struggled with sin. And he knew they weren't able to stand up against the, the forces that were around them. And he said, I know and I'm going to come, and I'm going to send a judge who's going to take care of you. Follow him, or follow her. It says they raised him up, and it says the people were blessed in that. But guess what the people did right after that? They got too big for their boots again, and they went and followed after other gods again, and they went and did their thing again, and you know what happened again? They found themselves all messed up and standing over here again, and you know what they did again? Lord, help! And guess what he did again? He sent another judge for them. And then that judge saved them. And guess what happened? Do you see a redundancy and a pattern happening here? Do you see it at all in your own life? And so what God ultimately had to do was this. God had to say it's never been about human judges, but it's about one judge who's going to come in, and he will ultimately defeat all of your enemies. He will eradicate out of the land all of the enemies. He will take on the ultimate enemy, and that is Satan, and he will destroy him on a cross, and he will defeat him at a grave, and he will raise himself from the dead and be seated at the right hand of the Father so that he will judge and that he will never lose and that he will constantly and continually come into your life to save you when you find yourselves in the hands of an enemy. And at the end of the day, you will be saved by him. But in the time frame that's happening in here, from the moment that you come to faith in Christ to the moment that you go be with him, guess what's going to happen? Patterns of stepping up and falling away. And so you don't cry out to Deborah, and you don't cry out to Barak, and you don't cry out to Gideon, you don't cry out to Samson. You cry out to the judge. And you say, Christ, come deliver me from my sin. Come deliver me from the oppression of those who would plunder me. Come and take care of my my adulterous heart, which runs after other gods, and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, I come and I cast myself down. The first thing you have to know about this pattern of redemption is this, and we're going to end in this way. The first thing you need to admit is you need to admit that you've gotten yourself in a heap of trouble. Anybody find yourself in a heap of trouble every now and then? We can hang out together because I find myself in heaps of trouble a lot. And when I get there, sometimes I get there and look around and go, how did I get here? I love it when people come into my office and go, I'm not exactly sure how this happened. 
had a young couple one time come into my office, and they said, Bill, we were supposed to get married in September, but we need to get married in February, and this was like the end of January. And I said, why do you need to get married in January, February? You were supposed to get married in September. He says, well, you know, we're not sure how it happened, but I'm pregnant. You're not sure how it happened. You know exactly how it happened. This is what happened. And I'm not talking biology. I'm talking you decided to go on your own way and do your own thing, and you thought that somehow you weren't going to have to have any consequence possibly at all for your behavior. But the beautiful thing about our God is he brings us into consequence for our behavior because he loves us and disciplines us as a God. And he leaves some enemies there in the land to show in us our desperate need of him. And so when we face these enemies and we fall sometimes to these enemies, our response shouldn't be, dang it, God, why did you leave the enemies in the land? But it should be, God, I fell again. Would you remind me that there's a judge who saved me by his own blood and his own life and his own payment? Would you come and deliver me again? And you know what God says to you? I already have. Believe in me. Stand up and now walk with me. Stay close to me. Some of you guys are finding yourselves in this pattern and you want the pattern broken. Well, I think what's happening in your lives is you're running to other judges. You're running to other deliverers. And there is one deliverer who can ultimately deliver you. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got to come to a point of owning your own mess, of looking that all other judges, all other deliverers are going to fail you and come in humility to the one who can forgive you and deliver you fully and ultimately. And some of you need to hear that today. You need to come today because let me promise you this, friends. Those enemies that you're facing, spiritually speaking, want to kill you. They want to destroy you. They don't want to just simply tickle you and have a little fun fine with you. They want to take you down. Kids who have your parents sitting next to you, you want to know why your parents so absolutely love you and want to be absolutely engaged in your life and want to point out to you the dangers of some of the things that you're doing? Is it because they hate you? No, it's because they know that if you go as a young boy and you start looking at pornography, it's more addictive uh, than heroin in the mind of a, of a man and that it will destroy your ability to understand sexuality later on. And they're going to tell you you can't have those things in your room and they're going to tell you you can't do this and to sip a little drink at a young age is going to mess you up and to go out and drive at 100 miles an hour is probably not a great thing. Why? Isn't it exhilarating to drive at 100 miles an hour? I wouldn't know, but I know that it's exhilarating to drive at 90. When I was younger, sorry, mom, my mother's here, and so she doesn't want to hear all these things, I'm sure, but, um, or a friend told me that it's fun to drive at 90. How about that? But God is saying to you, I don't want you to do those things, not because I don't want you to experience life, because I love you, and those things are going to destroy you. They're going to destroy you. And in your own lives, adults, this isn't about kids and teenagers. Running after wealth and running after looks and running after all of those things, they are going to destroy you ultimately because they will take away the place that God has for you himself in your life. He'll crowd him out. And so when you find yourself in that pattern, humble yourself before him. Cry out to the deliverer. And then experience what he says. I'll drive out your enemies before you. For some of you today, I pray that you pray that today. And then you'll probably have to pray it again tomorrow and the day after that. But the beauty of this is that God hears all of those prayers.
for you. We're going to look at some of that over the course of the next few weeks together, of seeing how Israel did this and how miraculous God was in pulling it all together and saving his people. And what I hope you see in the midst of that is you and God and that incredible relationship together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book of history that isn't dry, but it's our story. It's our story of wanting to keep just a little bit of sin around in our lives, just a little bit of spice, just to keep things fun. And Father, we don't see the dangerous nature of that sin in our lives, for it wants to kill us and destroy us. We pray that you would give us strength to come and to stand up against it. And Father, we pray more than anything else that you would send Christ by the power of your Spirit to defend us against those who would come to plunder and destroy and to devour us. We pray that for our children as parents, that we pray that you would protect them and surround them and that you would set up your post against all those who would come against them. We pray the same for our families, that there wouldn't be a place for the Canaanite or the Perizzite or, or the Moabite. There would be no place for pagan thoughts and life in our homes. That we would be eradicated in such a way that we could stand for Christ and in not a way to isolate ourselves, Lord, from the world around us, but that we would then be so effective to a world that needs to hear the good news of the gospel. May our hearts be broken to those who are still caught in this pattern. And would we tell them about the incredible, loving, merciful salvation that they can find in our God. To you be the glory in all things. Amen.